0: Please use discretion and take care before listening. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish
1: podcast.
0: Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. On December 28, 1992, just two days before her 10th birthday, Katie Beers vanished from a Long Island amusement center. National headlines in the days that followed read, the tiny tragedy from Long Island, and America's little girl lost. The ripple effects were extensive. Not only was a young child missing, a paralyzing sense of stranger danger also terrorized New York's second-largest county. What had become of little Katie, and was any child safe? What unfolded after the young girl's disappearance was a tale of alarming tragedy and unabiding resilience. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of Katie Beers. This case takes us to Long Island, New York. Located on Long Island's south shore, Mastic Beach is located about 70 miles east of New York City. Although it hugs the shoreline and runs parallel to the party destination, Fire Island, the town has always had a mixed reputation. It depends on the neighborhood, but Mastic Beach is known to be relatively unsafe. The odds of falling victim to violent crime or property crime in Mastic Beach are one in 57. Due to the lower cost of living and proximity to the ocean, Mastic Beach is desirable to lower-income families. In the 1990s, just as it is today, the town faced a high rate of drug addiction and teen pregnancy. In this town is where 9-year-old Katie Beers was living at the time of her disappearance. Katie's godmother, Linda Ingolari, lived in a house with her mother-in-law, Anne, and her husband, Sal. They resided in West Islip, also located on Long Island's South Shore. While it was once home to predominantly wealthy estate owners, by the 1970s, the area had morphed into a middle-class suburban community. Katie spent several years of her childhood in West Islip. Although her time was often split between her grandmother's home in West Islip, Various apartments rented by the Ingalleries, and the residences of another family friend, Katie's birth mother, Marilyn, very much believed in the old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. Marilyn, the single mother of two children, Katie and her older brother, John, relied heavily on the assistance of others, including Marilyn's mother, Helen. Unfortunately, Marilyn's reliance on a pseudo second family to raise her children sparked trouble which would eventually lead to an unthinkable tragedy. When Katie was only two months old, Marilyn decided to leave her with friends for some time due to her lack of financial stability. When Marilyn met Sal and Linda Ingolari, she was living in her childhood home in West Islip and working as a cab driver. Around the time she met the couple, Marilyn was pregnant with Katie. She couldn't identify her unborn daughter's father, and Marilyn knew she could not financially support a second child. This is what brought her to the decision to bring her newborn baby, Katie, to an apartment occupied by the Ingaleris to place her under their care for several months. According to the book Buried Memories, co-authored by journalist Carolyn Gusoff, When Marilyn returned to retrieve her daughter, the couple gave her a hard time. Sal and Linda refused to give her back, and the altercation turned physical. Linda chucked pots and pans in Marilyn's direction, while Sal hurled chairs and a lamp in her path. Marilyn had to call the cops in order to get Katie back. As time passed, surprisingly, Marilyn and Katie's godparents made amends. As Katie got older, she was a frequent visitor at any apartment the Ingallerys lived in at the time. She referred to them as Aunt Linda and Uncle Sal. Linda's mother, Ann Butler, who also helped care for Katie, insisted the little girl call her mom. At age three, Katie sometimes tagged along with Linda as she worked as a school bus driver, a private nurse, and a babysitter. Sal worked long hours driving a cab. Although it would seem on the surface that Katie was fortunate to have several adults who loved and cared for her, Katie's situation with her makeshift second family was far from beneficial. By all accounts, Aunt Linda treated Katie like an indentured servant. At age four, the young girl could be spotted dragging the family's laundry by wagon through the dirty streets to a nearby laundromat. She was also ordered to fetch cigarettes and junk food for her household. Sal had a temper, so out of fear, Katie did as she was told. Several neighbors and local business owners took note of the small child roaming the streets alone. According to a January 15, 1993 article published in the Miscellaneous. Neighbor Don Moody called the Inglaris to ask about Katie. When she mentioned her concerns to Linda, she was told to mind her own business. Around the time Katie was six years old, Sal and Linda moved into the beers' home. Sal had suffered a heart attack which made it difficult for him to work, and Linda had lost a leg as a result of complications from diabetes. With Marilyn constantly working and the Ingallerys incapacitated, the Beers' house fell into further disrepair and the cramped, overcrowded living quarters were unsightly, both inside and out. Scattered on the front lawn were car parts and various appliances. The inside of the home, filthy from decades of neglect, was a mismatch of trash, animal waste, and cockroaches. Wherever she went, Katie seemed to carry the household odor with her. She was often harassed by her peers, with classmates and neighborhood kids calling her the Cockroach Kid or Dirty Katie. Because of this, sometimes she cut first grade in favor of wandering around West Islip alone. The visual of a scruffy child wandering the streets with knotted hair and threadbare clothing would later prompt the press to describe Katie's childhood as Dickensian. She was just like a modern-day female Oliver Twist. In 1990, police visited Katie's home on an unknown routine matter. Suffolk County officers took note of the squalid living conditions and reported it to Child Protective Services, or CPS. Over the course of the next three years, CPS would visit the residents several times. They amassed a thick file on Katie that included allegations of educational neglect. Despite this, she was never removed from the home, an inaction that would certainly alter the course of Katie's life dramatically. Listening to so much true crime, of course my house is protected by a security alarm system, big dogs, lots of lighting, and more. But when I leave the house, I still want to feel safe. Enter Pepperball, which provides non-lethal personal protection systems. I recently got several of their products and was so impressed by them. The Pepperball Lifelight Launcher is the real deal. It's a premium safety product that has an LED flashlight, aiming laser, and a launcher with five-round capacity. Slide the safety forward, and you're ready to launch rounds at creepers with accuracy of up to 40 feet, keeping a safe distance from trouble. Bad guys will be sniffing a non-lethal dust that immediately irritates the eyes, nose, and throat, and lasts for about 15 minutes, enough time for you to get to safety. I really like that the Light Launcher does not resemble a gun, so it's safe to carry anywhere. I've been keeping mine at my bedside for peace of mind. Pepperball also makes smaller products, one of which is perfect for keeping in your purse. Pepperball's personal safety products are used by law enforcement, Homeland Defense, the military, and more. These products are legit. If you're a hiker, a runner, someone who walks your dog a lot, or just someone who wants safety on the go, Pepperball has got you covered. Get a handle on your personal safety and put bad guys in check. Go to pepperball.com and use promo code Murderish10 for 10% off your order in the new year. That's pepperball.com, promo code Murderish10 for your personal safety. In 2020, we are doing so much from home. Well, you can also ship packages from home. With Stamps.com, avoid lines at the post office and ship packages via USPS or UPS from home and save money while you do it. Small business owners, listen up. Create a Stamps.com account and start printing US postage right from your home printer for outgoing invoices and packages. Whether you're a small online seller, or have a huge warehouse where you ship thousands of packages each day, you can do it all with Stamps.com. Plus, Stamps.com account holders get 5 cents off of every first-class stamp, up to 40% off priority mail, and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. With my Stamps account, I've saved time, money, and headaches shipping perk packages to murderish Patreon subscribers without even leaving the house. So, make 2021 the year you stop wasting time going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There is no risk. And with my promo code Murderish, you get a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the home page, and type in Murderish. That's stamps.com, promo code MURDERISH, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. By 1991, the friendship between Linda and Marilyn had deteriorated. The Ingolaries must have felt a strong sense of possession over Katie, as there was a power struggle between Linda and Marilyn regarding how each woman wanted to raise the young girl. The Beers family ended up moving out to Mastic Beach, while the Ingolary's remained in West Islip. The fact that the Ingolary's would no longer be living under the same roof must have been a huge relief to Katie. Not only was Katie made to wait on them hand and foot, Sal Ingallery had been sexually abusing her since she was a toddler. Katie remained silent for years, mostly out of fear. She had witnessed his rage and had been struck by him before so she complied with his depraved demands. In early 1992, Katie finally confided in her older brother about the abuse. He told their mother, who notified police. Linda, Marilyn's former friend, felt strongly that Marilyn had made the whole thing up, perhaps as her latest ploy to keep Katie with her. For years, the two women had been engaged in a battle over custody, That often pitted them against each other. Regardless of what Linda believed, Sal was arrested on child abuse charges in October of that year. Around this time, a man named John Esposito entered the picture. Located about 42 miles east of Manhattan, Bay Shore is where Esposito, or Big John as Katie Beers' family called him, called home. Marilyn Beers became acquainted with Esposito through his mother who had mentioned her son during a ride in Marilyn's cab. Marilyn, a mother of one at the time, had mentioned that her son, John, lacked a strong male figure in his life. Esposito's mother told Marilyn that her son, John, was part of the Big Brother's program. They exchanged phone numbers, and soon, John Esposito began spending time with John Beers, who was soon referred to as Little John to avoid confusion. Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with estro control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. Starting at age 7 or 8, John Beers started spending nearly every weekend at Esposito's house, where he received numerous gifts from the male figure. Big John gave the young boy toys, a bike, and an expensive stereo set. He even took little John on trips to places like Disney World in Florida and Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey. Marilyn grew to trust Esposito given the relationship he had with her son. Soon, Big John became a part of Katie's life, too. Much like her older brother, Katie spent a great deal of time with him. Big John showered her with gifts and soon took her on outings to toy stores and arcades. Esposito's house was a popular hangout, not only for the beer's children. Other neighborhood kids also flocked there. From the book titled Buried Memories, quote, Big John's house was a toy store, candy store, and amusement park all in one. He converted his family garage into an apartment. That's where he lived, and that's where any kid with a sweet tooth and a video game habit would end up. The downstairs of Esposito's home had two garage stalls that led to the living room. His bedroom contained a walk-in closet with wall-to-wall games and a mini-fridge fully stocked with cans of soda. He also had an entire room in the house devoted to gaming. It was filled with ping-pong tables and classic arcade games. Basically, it was any kid's dream. Though Marilyn believed that Esposito was a good role model for her children, reality came crashing down when little John confessed something to his mother. He told her that Big John had been touching him inappropriately for years. After that, Marilyn refused to allow Katie to spend any time with Esposito. She informed her friend Linda of the abuse, and she agreed not to let Esposito be around Katie. But Marilyn was also concerned about Linda's husband, Sal, who had been released from jail and was awaiting trial for the sexual abuse allegations involving Katie. Marilyn did not want to risk another encounter between Katie and either of the two accused men. As it turned out, Big John was not a part of the Big Brother mentorship program, as Marilyn had been led to believe. Esposito had in fact applied to the program, but he was promptly rejected. The director of the Big Brother program had looked into his background and found child abduction charges. He tried to claim it was all a case of mistaken identity, that it had been his twin brother Ronald who committed the crime. But soon after, Esposito received a letter stating that his application had been withdrawn. This did not seem to faze him. Esposito proceeded to have business cards printed and took out an ad in the local penny saver stating, If you have a son who you think needs a man's influence, I may be able to volunteer my time. The abduction charges previously leveled against Esposito stemmed from an incident in 1978. Esposito had approached a seven year old boy at the Sunrise Mall in Massapequa. He had connections with the boy's family. And the child admitted that he was about to run away from home. Esposito dragged the boy to his car and brought him back to his West Islip home. Luckily, the determined boy managed to escape. Esposito was arrested at the same mall nearly a month later when security guards spotted him. Because he had no prior criminal record, Esposito was offered a plea deal. This brought the charges down to unlawful imprisonment which at the time was a misdemeanor in New York State. Esposito paid for the horrific crime with only a year of probation. Little John and Katie's mother, Marilyn, had no idea what had transpired 15 years prior to Esposito entering her children's lives. Linda's mother, Anne, stopped by the Beers' residence four days before Katie's 10th birthday. She said Linda had a party planned for Katie and asked if the girl could stay over for a few nights. Marilyn agreed but conveyed a few conditions. Katie could not be around Sal or Big John, and she wanted her daughter back home with her for her actual birthday. Anne promised she would keep Big John away, and assured Marilyn that Sal no longer lived at the house. Before sending Katie off with her honorary grandmother, Marilyn instructed her daughter to either call her or the police if she spotted either man. The trouble was, Marilyn was unemployed at the time and did not have a phone. If Katie wanted to reach her mother, she had to call one of Marilyn's neighbors to fetch her. This was why Katie was told that if she was ever in trouble, she would call Linda first, then her grandmother Helen, and then Marilyn's neighbor. Reaching Marilyn was no easy task. The next day, the Ingallerys threw Katie a small party. She wore a blossom-style hat to cover her new short haircut. Her long, flowing hair had to be cut off after she came down with a bad case of head lice, which embarrassed her. And Now that Katie was going to be double digits, she wanted to be called Catherine as soon as she turned 10. Luckily, Sal Ingolari was absent from the gathering. John Esposito, however, showed up at the party at some point, gifting Katie a Barbie dream house. He told Linda he'd return the next day to put it together. As soon as he left, Katie reminded her Aunt Linda she was not supposed to see Big John. Linda simply responded that he was a nice man. Esposito came back the following day. After assembling the Dream House, he asked Linda if he could take Katie to Spaceplex for her birthday, and Linda agreed, despite strict instructions from Marilyn not to allow her daughter to be around the man. Spaceplex was an indoor amusement park and arcade in Smithtown when it opened in 1990 it attracted hordes of families. Many Long Island natives who came of age during SpacePlex heyday retained fond memories of skee-ball competitions, bumper car jams, and air hockey tournaments. The amusement center's young clientele were welcomed with a glowing, smoky entryway that opened up to a mix of arcade games and rides. Similar to current indoor amusement centers, Tokens were used to play games or engage in activities. High scores earned tickets, which could be traded in for menial prizes like stuffed animals and bouncy balls. Parents would often drop their kids off with their friends for an afternoon of fairly cheap entertainment. SpacePlex was considered a safe, fun place for all ages. For added peace of mind, the owners employed up to six security guards per shift, The 43,000-square-foot amusement center attracted an average of 1,500 visitors on weekends. It was a gaming wonderland. Around mid-morning on December 28th, Esposito left the Ingolary residence with Katie in tow. He asked Katie where she wanted to go for her birthday and offered to buy her morgue presents. Esposito made Katie feel special. Allowing her to ride in the front seat of his vehicle and sometimes allowing her to sit on his lap and take the steering wheel during their drive, Esposito stopped at a 7-eleven so Katie could get a cola-flavored Slurpee. Then they drove to Toys R Us, which was around the corner from Esposito's house in Bay Shore. He bought Katie a Barbie workout tape, a troll doll which he named Big John and the Super Nintendo video game Home Alone 2 instead of taking Katie to Spaceplex however they headed back to his house to try the new video game something was different about this trip to Big John's house Katie was usually there with her brother or other children but this time she was alone with the tall gangly 43-year-old man playing her new game in his bedroom the truth was that leading up to this point, Esposito had attempted to get the young girl alone many times. According to the book Buried Memories, he would call Katie at Linda's house and ask her to sneak out of the house while Linda napped. He would entice her to do so by telling her that he'd give her candy or buy her a new toy. Upon tiring of her new video game, Big John tried to touch Katie, but she quickly pulled away. That's when she noticed a shift in his typically warm demeanor. Without warning, he hauled her down the stairs, kicking and screaming. Esposito finally put Katie down when they reached his office. This was the very first time Katie was in that room, as it was the only part of the house deemed off-limits to visitors. She watched fearfully as John removed several baseball caps from Hooks inside an office closet. A unit of wooden shelves inside rolled out to reveal a rectangular hole in the wall. On the floor, hidden by a rug, was a concrete slab that could only be lifted through a pulley system. While Big John was distracted, Katie grabbed the office phone and dialed 911. Before she could utter a sound, Big John snatched the phone away and screamed at her to drop down the chute and through a tunnel. As the frightened young girl vanished into the darkness, her captor followed close behind. At around a quarter to 5 p.m., Linda received a panicked message from Katie. Linda's disability made it difficult to move around the house, so by the time she got to the phone and picked it up, she had missed the call. When she played the message back on her answering machine, She listened in horror as Katie sobbed about a man with a knife kidnapping her. Before hanging up, Katie whispered that he was coming back. As Linda told journalist Carolyn Gussoff for the book Buried Memories, she was crying hysterically. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I had to play it back ten more times to make sure it was real. A short while later, Esposito traveled to SpacePlex, which was about 25 miles from his home. He asked a security guard to page Katie twice, saying that he had lost track of her. Meanwhile, in response to the mysterious call from Katie, Linda called SpacePlex and had them page Esposito. When she asked him what happened, all he said was that Katie stepped away to buy game tokens for just a few minutes, and suddenly she was gone. When security failed to spot her anywhere inside or around both the public and emergency exit, Linda notified police. When the news broke that a nine-year-old child had been abducted from SpacePlex, Long Island families were shocked and horrified. The realization that there had been a false sense of security seemed to dominate conversations among parents. The notion that one of their own children could be stolen away amplified a sense of stranger danger that was already prevalent in the 1990s. Children who were still permitted to go to SpacePlex with friends began moving through the arcade in larger groups. Others could only visit with parental supervision and were no longer allowed to roam around alone. The crowd gradually began to thin out with parents instead opting to have their children play with friends at home. Gary Tolazzo, one of the three co-owners of Spaceplex, told journalist Helen Peterson in a December 1992 article for the New York Daily News how the case was impacting morale. He said, "It hurts me personally. Our reputation is that the place is so clean, so friendly, so safe that parents have gotten into the habit of dropping their kids off and going shopping, this is no dirtbag arcade. And yet, despite its prior reputation, Spaceplex never fully recovered because of the alleged crime tied to it. The company filed for bankruptcy in 1996. Its doors were closed for good just a few months later. As for the family, both Marilyn and John Beers were emotionally shattered when Katie went missing. The neglectful mother was depicted in countless news articles clutching her son tightly while sitting on Katie's bed, which was surrounded by a sea of stuffed animals. In actuality, Katie did not even have her own room at her mother's house. She and Marilyn often shared a bed. And instead of supporting each other during a trying time, Marilyn and her son were at odds. Little John was arrested on assault charges after a physical altercation occurred between them. Aunt Linda felt an enduring sense of guilt after Katie disappeared. She had trusted Esposito to keep an eye on her goddaughter, and still, someone had supposedly snatched her away under his care. Adding to the complex situation was the fact that Marilyn had demanded that Katie be kept away from Esposito, Yet Linda allowed that very thing to happen. If you find yourself with Dead Time, I have a brain-engaging game you should try. Best Fiends is a really fun and challenging puzzle game that is a perfect time killer. I've been playing Best Fiends almost daily to kill boredom and keep my brain exercised. I find that advancing through the levels in the game gives me such a rush of adrenaline and also bragging rights with my friends, who also play the game. I just passed level 155 and trust me, it wasn't easy getting there, but that's actually the best part. I was so sick of zombie scrolling through all of my social media accounts, slowly sucking the actual life out of me. I've replaced that downtime with Best Fiends and my brain thanks me for it. New levels are added all the time, which is great because I honestly don't want the game to end. Best Fiends has more than 100 million downloads and has been rated 5 stars countless times. It is seriously a must-play. You're going to love all of the cute characters in the game and the fact that the game never seems to end, unlike your favorite true crime docuseries and we all know how that feels. If you want to kill boredom and keep your brain engaged, check out Best Fiends. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. If you're like me, you dread waiting on hold to schedule a visit with your doctor, and you dread the in-person visit even more. Plush Care solves that issue by offering virtual doctor visits that are so easy to schedule. Just go online, choose a convenient time, and look forward to your doctor visit, which you won't even have to leave the house for. These days, going anywhere is kind of risky. So Plush Care is such a welcomed option right now. I love that Plush Care makes prioritizing my health so darn easy. They accept most major insurance carriers and are available in all 50 states. If you're finding it difficult to manage your health right now, like so many people are, Plush Care doctors are here for you. What I like most about Plush Care is that I can get quality health care right from my house, from diagnosis to treatment, and any necessary prescription will be sent to a pharmacy of my choice. They make the process so easy that it motivates me to stay on top of my health. This is seriously the new way to do health care. It's safe and so much more convenient. Plush Care makes it easier than ever to take care of yourself inside and out. Start your membership today go to plushcare.com/murderish to start your free 30-day trial that's p l u s h c a r e.com/murderish for a free 30-day trial plushcare.com/murderish katie's family put their faith in the suffolk county police to track her down yearning for her safe return home The investigation into Katie's disappearance was led by Detective Lieutenant Dominic Verone, commanding officer of the hostage negotiation and kidnap investigation teams. He was a 20-year veteran of the Suffolk County Police Department. Detectives started with the staff at SpacePlex. Several employees recalled seeing John Esposito that afternoon, but never Katie. This made detectives very suspicious of Esposito. Officers then canvassed the area around SpacePlex in addition to all three towns Katie had frequented, Mastic Beach, Bay Shore, and West Islip. Missing person posters were pinned to telephone poles all over the county, with store owners taping the flyers to windows and national news outlets broadcasting her image on a frequent basis. The Long Island Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children partnered with the Universal Child Safety Organization of Brooklyn. Executive Director Louis Tilano, a former New York City homicide detective, saw this case as an opportunity to publicize his nonprofit organization. Together, these organizations were able to offer a $10,000 reward for information leading to Katie's safe return. Unfortunately, Issuing an Amber Alert was not an option at this time. The Amber Plan, where news of a missing child is widely broadcasted, wasn't established until several years later in 1996. Detectives focused heavily on the strongest piece of evidence in the case, the distress call Katie made to her godmother the day she went missing. Detectives managed to trace the call back to a phone booth at an Amoco gas station located just across the street from SpacePlex. With assistance from the FBI, it was determined the call was not a live call. It was a recording. If the call had been made by Katie from inside the phone booth, the sound of cars rushing past and other background noises would have been heard. Investigators dusted the phone booth for fingerprints. Unfortunately, this turned up no leads. With little information to go on, the Suffolk County Police pivoted their attention to the suspicious figures in Katie's life. Detectives started with the last person who saw Katie, John Esposito. In his account of events, he had brought Katie to SpacePlex after their excursion to Toys R Us. He said he lost track of her just before 4 p.m., but this conflicted with the call to Linda Inglary, which had been made around 4.45. This left about an hour of time during which Esposito's whereabouts were unknown. In total, Esposito was grilled for almost 18 hours with detectives retracing routes he claimed to take that day. At one point during the two-day interrogation, Esposito mentioned that he remembered seeing a man staring at Katie inside of Spaceplex. Police held their suspicion and obtained a warrant to search both Esposito's truck and his home. The day after she disappeared, Katie's coat and hat were found inside of his truck. Even though it had been December, the 28th was not a particularly cold day. It wasn't outside the realm of possibility that Katie ditched these items before entering the arcade. The first search of Esposito's house yielded few results. A second search, however, led to the discovery of Katie's purse hidden in his bedroom. Both Linda and Katie's mother had told detectives this was Katie's fondest possession. She would have never left it behind. Suspicion toward Esposito escalated and his Bayshore home was placed under heavy surveillance. Another potential suspect was Sal Inglary. He had been arrested on sexual abuse charges months before the kidnapping, so there was a potential motive. After questioning, however, Sal's alibi, that he had been working at a garage when Katie went missing, was confirmed by several witnesses. At that point, Sal was cleared as a suspect. Based on inconsistencies in Esposito's alibi and the abduction charges in his past, investigators clung to their instinct that he was somehow involved in the disappearance of Katie Beers. But so far, there just wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, less than 1% of missing children cases involve non-family abductions. This means that despite the wariness Long Island families felt towards strangers as a result of this case, it was statistically improbable that Katie was kidnapped by a complete stranger. The Suffolk County Police Department had exhausted all of their resources with little return on their efforts. As more time passed, the odds of finding Katie alive started to look grim. Historically, After 72 hours have passed since any person goes missing, the likelihood of them being found alive drops dramatically. A little over two weeks after Katie had gone missing, there was a major break in the case. On January 13, 1993, after Katie had been missing for 17 days, Esposito confessed to her kidnapping. His lawyer, Andrew Sybin Jr., had pushed him to cooperate with police after the primary suspect complained about intense surveillance on his house. After his confession, Esposito showed police the underground bunker where he had held Katie against her will. Against all odds, Katie was found alive. The horrific details of her captivity emerged and were subsequently leaked to the press. Esposito had begun building the bunker a full year prior, with Katie specifically in mind. His neighbors had no idea he was constructing a secret room. They only knew that he was unmarried, spent time with local children, and often worked in his garage. The room where Katie had been held captive was 10 feet below the converted two-story garage. The small bunker contained a camping mattress A pillow and blanket, a one hundred and one Dalmatian's nightgown, and two TVs. One TV was hooked up to cable, the other was closed-circuit television with a feed to Esposito's security camera, which was pointed at his driveway. Katie could see police coming and going, but her screams went unheard even when officers were inside the house. The room was soundproof, but not watertight because it was December. There were several instances where snow or rain trickled down into the space, and Katie was forced to sit in wet clothes while trapped underground. A toilet in the bunker was not hooked up to any plumbing. Inside the commode sat a black trash bag. There was also a coffin-sized box suspended from the ceiling in the middle of the room. Inside the small wooden box was a thin mattress, handcuffs, and a chain attached to a sidewall. When Big John was displeased with her behavior, he would lock Katie inside. A play school baby monitor was kept down in the bunker with Katie. Sometimes he would listen in on her, and other times he switched the monitor so she could hear his interactions with police. When he had initially captured her, Esposito had forced Katie to record the message that would eventually be recorded on Linda's answering machine. The first time she spoke into his tape recorder, Big John had not been paying attention. She tried her luck. After reciting the lines he gave her, the quick-witted girl whispered, Big John took me. He has me at his house. But he listened back to the message and slapped Katie in the face before ordering her to record it a few more times the way he had instructed. Moments later, he told Katie to pretend she was sleeping. He planned to take a photo and send it to authorities. By his logic, detectives would assume that Katie was dead and call off the search. But she refused to cooperate, which landed her in the smaller box. From that moment on, she barely slept, terrified that he would try to take a photo and proceed with his plan. Big John came down to the bunker twice a day. His descent down the hole and through the tunnel took him about five to ten minutes. It wasn't easy for a grown man to travel through the confined spaces. His arrival was always announced by the sound of a battery-powered wrench sealing the inner door to the bunker. Esposito plied Katie with soda and fast food. Sometimes he was the kind man that she recognized. Most of the time, however, he was someone else entirely. As Katie later described it in an Ask Me Anything thread on Reddit, there were times he would come and rape me, and other times he would bring me a toy from his toy closet and food. Now, I would describe it as a split personality. Sometimes he would transform while he was there in front of me. He would come bring me a toy or juice, and then he would rape me. Early on in her time of captivity, Katie noticed a set of keys on a high shelf down in the bunker. Using a milk crate, she snatched them up and hid them beneath her pillow. The next time she was locked in the small box, she managed to escape back to the bunker. Esposito had been away for two days while police interrogated him. When he returned to find Katie had escaped, he chained her to the wall by her neck for several days. Inexplicably, He also had a tape recorder hidden in the bunker, capturing what was later deemed the Katie tapes. The tape recorder captured Katie singing happy birthday to herself and sobbing. As detailed in the book Buried Memories, Big John claimed that he was in love with Katie. When she told him she wanted to go home, she said he told her, I'm going to keep you down here forever until people forget about you. You'll marry me. You'll have children with me. You won't have to go to college because I'll take care of you, Katie, forever. He even supplied her with hush money, $500 in total, to keep her from talking about what had happened. According to Katie's Ask Me Anything thread, when officers arrived to rescue her, she thought the men were invited there by Big John to join him in the abuse. She was in a state of denial and complete disbelief that the whole ordeal was finally over. After Katie was found, Esposito was arrested and held on $500,000 bail. His lawyer, Andrew Sybin Jr., attempted to negotiate a lower bail by portraying his client as some kind of hero. As documented in a January 1993 Associated Press article printed in the Miscellane, the defense attorney argued, I can honestly say Mr. Esposito was instrumental in the recovery of Katie Beers. Katie Beers might not be alive if not for Mr. Esposito. But prosecutors countered that Esposito could not have led investigators to Katie if she had not been kidnapped in the first place. The bail remained at half a million dollars. Katie was taken to a hospital for medical evaluation and waited to be placed in a foster home. In January of 1993, journalist Gary Mike Larry wrote an article titled Let Katie Breathe for the New York Daily News. It was his plea to the press to give the young girl space away from the cameras and journalists who tailed her everywhere. Suffolk County District Attorney James Catterson piped in at the news conference, saying Katie needed a little girl's space. She needs room to be silly. Surprisingly, this worked. In the weeks that followed, media outlets backed off and gave the young girl her space. In the meantime, various members of Katie's family made their rounds on the talk show circuit, making paid appearances on the Phil Donahue Show, the Montel Williams Show, and the Maury Povich show. The publicity garnered from these interviews was exploitive, but not completely out of character for the family who'd always appeared to treat Katie like some sort of prop. Suffolk County District Attorney James Catterson offered both Sal Inglary and John Esposito a plea deal on the condition they both pleaded guilty, Ingaleri to sexual abuse charges and Esposito to kidnapping charges. They would receive lighter sentences. In a May 1994 New York Daily News article, Esposito claimed the plea deal was the best option for both him and Katie. Taking the plea deal meant there would be no trial and Katie would not have to testify. Esposito's own words were I don't want Katie to hurt anymore. Esposito appeared in court on June 16, 1994. As part of the plea deal, Ten other charges, among them sexual abuse and endangering the welfare of a child, were dismissed. Instead of the 25 years he faced prior to the plea deal, Esposito was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. As mentioned in Helen Peterson's June 1994 article in the New York Daily News, Katie Beers told the Suffolk County DA post-sentencing, he never said he was sorry. And really, something should be done to big people who do things like that to kids. As for Sal Ingoleri, he ended up backing out of the plea deal, claiming that he had not been Mirandized upon his arrest. He also rescinded his confession to two counts of sexual abuse, arguing detectives tricked him into confessing. As mentioned in an article by Gary McAleary for a July 2, 1994 New York Daily News article, Ingolary thought he was sarcastically confessing to the crime, saying, Like, yeah, I did that. Ultimately, he squashed the plea deal and demanded a trial. The Monday after John Esposito's sentencing, on June 20, 1994, Sal Ingolary's case went to trial taking place in the Suffolk County District Court in Riverhead, New York. The prosecution's star witness was, of course, Katie Beers. She spent four hours on the stand on June 28th, delivering her testimony and being cross-examined by defense attorney Thomas Kenneth. Judge Joel Lefkowitz tried to get the then 11-year-old girl to relax by asking about her favorite subject in school, and what kind of books she liked reading. The girl with a notoriously disheveled appearance now sat in a lace dress, nervously sipping water, and clutching a pocketbook stuffed with good luck charms. Her testimony included details about her Cinderella-like childhood, forced into a life of domestic servitude by her second family. The molestation she endured from Sal happened in plain sight while other adults in the household were preoccupied. She cited between six to eight occurrences of sexual abuse in the months of April, November, and December of 1991, when Katie was just eight years old. The defense tried and failed repeatedly to poke holes in her testimony. Why hadn't she told anyone about the abuse? As documented by Helen Peterson and Larry Sutton, For a June 1994 issue of the New York Daily News, Katie had been scared into silence, a reaction which is common among sexual abuse victims. Katie was well aware of Sal's rage and had seen him kill one of the family's cats by throwing it against a wall. That anger was projected onto Katie. She testified he was always beating up on people and animals. "'Sometimes he'd slap me on the face "'and leave a big red mark. "'Sometimes he'd pick me up by the shirt.'" About halfway through testifying about the sexual abuse, Katie turned to the judge and whispered that Sal was looking at her in a threatening way. She asked if he could be removed from the room. This exemplified for the court the level of trepidation she felt toward her abuser. When Sal took the stand, He accused Katie of lying about the molestation. He also denied putting her to work, but admitted he had spanked her once when she was unruly. After 90 minutes of deliberation, the jury were ready to deliver a verdict. They found Sal Inglary guilty on two counts of first-degree sexual abuse and two counts of endangering the welfare of a child. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison With the possibility of parole. Interestingly, his sentence was lighter than that of John Esposito, who took a plea deal. After the trial concluded, Suffolk County DA James Catterson commended Katie for her bravery. In speaking to Helen Peterson and Larry Sutton for the New York Daily News, he said, It took a lot of courage for that little girl to go up there and say those things. In an Associated Press article written by Frank Catterson went on to say, We as a society must protect this child, or our professed love for our own children is just a fraud, and our so-called compassion for each other is just a mockery. For the entirety of his prison term at Sing Sing Prison— John Esposito denied any sexual misconduct with his captor. Then, in 2013, he changed his tune, finally admitting to sexually abusing and raping Katie Beers. Just a few hours after his confession, 64-year-old Esposito dropped dead from natural causes, perhaps a case of poetic justice. Sal Inglary served 12 years at Riverhead Correctional Facility before being paroled in July of 2006. Before his release, he had to be assigned a risk level of reoffending under Megan's Law. In New York State, Megan's Law dictates all sexual offenders have to register their name, address, and details of their crimes to appear in the sex offender registry a risk level is assigned to sex offenders to assess their likelihood of reoffending. According to the website Parents for Megan's Law, the organization's executive director at the time, Laura Ahern, testified that it is impossible to rehabilitate child sex abusers, and therefore they should all be considered high-risk offenders when they get out of prison. Although the State Board of Examiners of Sex Offenders initially considered assigning Ingolary a low-risk score, the Suffolk County DA intervened to ensure that he was deemed high-risk. Shortly after being released, Ingolary moved into a Bayshore motel. Then, for several months, authorities lost track of him. He was eventually found in North Carolina hiding in a closet beneath a pile of clothing. The convicted sexual abuser was arrested again in October of 2007 for violating his parole. Ingolari had failed to notify his parole officer that he relocated to Rockingham, North Carolina after his release. According to a February 2009 article in the New York Daily News, Ingolari told detectives. He did not want to go back to jail and that it was very difficult for him to live in Suffolk County. By secretly moving, he also violated Megan's law, which required him to re register as a sex offender when relocating to another state. Ingallery faced federal charges and was held in the Riverhead Correctional Facility on $100,000 bail. He remained there until February of 2009 before suffering a fatal heart attack. Sal Ingallery was dead at the age of 55. With both of her abusers gone, Katie was assured she'd never be hurt by them again. Months after being rescued from the underground lair, Katie was placed with a foster family on eastern Long Island. She had four foster siblings and was raised with far more structure than she had ever experienced in her early life. She was assigned small chores around the house, and her foster parents made sure she attended school regularly. But they also made sure she felt loved, taking her on trips to Disney World and on family ski trips. Marilyn Beers was given limited visitation with Katie twice a month. As she got older, Katie wanted little to do with her old life. She attended East Hampton High and was active on the volleyball team. Then, Katie went on to attend a university in Pennsylvania, where she became a resident director and eventually met the man who was now her husband. After decades of silence, Katie Beers decided to tell her story with the help of journalist Karen Gussoff. The book, Buried Memories, landed on the top 10 New York Times bestseller list when it was released in 2013. In a January 2013 article for the Associated Press, Katie told journalist Frank Eltman that the kidnapping was the best thing that happened to me because it allowed her to escape a life of abuse. She added, I try not to be sad about what happened because ultimately it made me who I am today and I'm very satisfied and happy with my life. The thirty-seven-year-old mother of two currently lives in rural Pennsylvania and works in insurance sales. I'm going to close this episode with Katie's own powerful and insightful words. In response to the question of what abuse survivors need to hear, Katie responded, They don't need to hear anything, but they do need to be heard on their own terms. More than anything, it doesn't help to tell someone, I know what you're going through. I've had people say this to me, and I've responded with, Oh, you've been kidnapped by a family friend, raped by two men, and held in an underground bunker? Now, that was the smart-ass thing to say. But no, you don't know what I'm going through, nor do I want you to know what I went through. Survivors need to be listened to when they want to talk and loved. That's it. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Stick around after the closing music to hear a promo for Excuse Me, That's Illegal podcast. Make sure to search for and subscribe to the show. After the podcast promo, you'll hear a list of sources used for this episode. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, Subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. Just search Murderish on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Alison Schwartz. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
1: Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips, Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.
0: Sources for this episode include an Associated Press New York Post February 21, 2009 article, an article by the Associated Press in the Orlando Sentinel, dated January 15, 1993, an article by the Associated Press in the Miscellane, dated January 15, 1993, an article by the Associated Press in the Record, dated January 17, 1993, A 2013 article by the Titletown Publishing in Green Bay, Wisconsin. An article by Frank Eltman, AP Top News Package dated January 15, 2013. A print article dated January 15, 1993 in the Miscellanean by Rick Hampson. A 1993 Harper Paperbacks article by Arthur Herzog. A July 2, 1994 print article by Mike McAleary. A May 18, 1994 Daily News article by Mike McAlary. A June 29, 1994 print article in the Daily News by Mike McAleary. A print article dated April 25th, 1994 in the Daily News by Mike McAleary. An article in the New York Times dated June 29, 1994 by John T. McQuiston. A Daily News print article dated June 29, 1994 by Helen Peterson and Lori C. Merrill. A July 2nd, 1994 print article in the Daily News by Helen Peterson and Larry Sutton. A December 31st, 1992 print article in the Daily News by Helen Peterson. A Daily News print article dated June 17th, 1994 by Helen Peterson. An April 25th, 1994 Daily News article by Corky Symasco. A February 4th, 1993 print article in the Baltimore Sun by Alice Steinbach. An Ask Me Anything Reddit thread by Katie Beers dated January 2018. The website for the National Center for the Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. An article dated April 8, 2008 at parentsformeganslaw.org. A September 5, 2013 CBS New York article at newyork.cbslocal.com a New York Times News Service article in the Chicago Tribune dated January 17, 1993 at chicagotribune.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.